0: Because you get that legend is a phrase bandied around sport far too easily. Because you get that politics is more about what's possible. Because you get that a cryptic clue can have a simple solution. Because you get the benefit of hearing other opinions. The Irish Times. Because you get it. Enjoy unlimited access to informed opinion and real news. Visit irishtimes.com and get the first month for just one euro. T's and C's apply.
3: January the 11th, 1983. The Four Courts in Dublin is the main courts of Justice in Ireland. It's another grand 18th-century building designed by James Gandon. Indeed, if you stand on the balcony above the massive round hole and look down, you could still be in the 18th century, with the mill of black robes, wigs, tipstaffs, judges, lawyers, parties and criminals. On this January day in 1983, Most of the crowd milling around the round hall were there for one thing only. It was the day when Malcolm MacArthur's murder trial began. It was less than six months since he brutally murdered a 27 year old nurse, Bridie Gargan, and a 27 year old farmer, Donald Dunn. The Attorney General, Patrick Connolly, had resigned. Charlie Haughey's government had fallen. Yet the public interest in the case remained high. Conspiracy theories about cover-ups and political chicanery abounded. But the eagerly anticipated trial turned out to be an anti-climax and a farce. The trial opened and was concluded within 10 minutes.
4: People made assumptions. They made assumptions that this was a stitch-up. Those assumptions of stitch-up were heightened when MacArthur pleaded guilty and there was, in effect, no trial. He pleaded guilty to the murder of Bridie Gargan and the case concerning the, the killing of Donald Dunn was left on the record, if you like, as a not-taken, a nullly prosecute.
3: The judge, James McMahon, returned a guilty verdict on one count only, the murder of Bridie Gargan. Donald Dunn's family had justice long-fingered for eternity. To add insult to injury, Judge McMahon refused point-blank to allow any statements to be read. If those embroiled in the affair thought this would draw a line under the matter, they were badly mistaken. What happened in those moments caused outrage and consternation. Why was the statement suppressed? What were they trying to hide? It all added fuel to the fire. I'm Harry McGee of the Irish Times, and this is the final episode of Gooboo, a seven-part series on the sensational murder case and how it almost paid to the career of Ireland's most controversial political leader, Charles J. Haughey. It
1: wasn't called Watergate in, in the Irish context, it was called Gooboo.
0: Famous
5: words, grotesque, unprecedented, bizarre and uh, unbelievable.
4: It was grotesque, it was unbelievable, it was bizarre, it was unprecedented. It was a gooboo situation and Hawkey was right in the middle of it. People, you know, saw all kinds of conspiracies during that
6: 81, 82. It was crazy stuff. I mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two.
5: My name is Brenda Power. I'm a journalist. Back in 1982, I just qualified as a journalist and very shortly after that got work as a court reporter for the Irish press. So I did. I went along to the court to, to just to, to see what I could see on the day of the sentencing. M-
3: maybe describe what you can remember of the day.
5: It was in one of the main courts in the Round Hall, one of the, the actual four courts. One of the old, traditional, you know, everybody's idea of what a courtroom should look like dark, curtained judge up on the high plinth. He looked like Malcolm MacArthur. He looked exactly like Malcolm MacArthur who has become almost an iconic figure in terms of his appearance, in terms of the particular persona that, that he has portrayed you know, unfailingly, it seems, even since I've seen pictures of him, he looked very much like that, the hair, the dicky bow. And I remember he was instantly recognisable. I remember the court feeling very packed. And as far as I remember, it was quite brief. It was quite brief, because there was only one murder being dealt with. And I remember the, the crowds outside in the court, in the round hall afterwards, as he was being brought away.
3: Malcolm MacArthur had been in custody in Mountjoy Prison since his arrest in Patrick Connolly's apartment on the 13th of August. His defence was led by one of Ireland's leading criminal lawyers, Patrick McEntee. The defence team had considered a plea of guilty but insane, but report by psychiatrists who reviewed MacArthur in prison did not support this strategy. In the run-up to the trial, a plea bargain was hammered out with the Director of Public Prosecutions. MacArthur would plead guilty to one murder charge while the charges in the second murder case would be dropped. The thinking behind it was that MacArthur, then 36, would have a good chance of being released while still a relatively young man. On that day in January, 1983, MacArthur pleaded guilty to the murder of Bridie Gargan. But for his brutal killing of Donald Dunn, it would be a nully prosequi or null prosecution. That caused outrage. The refusal of the judge, James McMahon to allow Superintendent John Courtney to outline the facts of the case caused a massive public furore.
5: But on the day he pleaded guilty to one of the murders and then a nolle prosequi was entered in respect of Donald Dunn. That really did cause, I remember at the time, a great deal of comment and disquiet not least for the Dunn family. And I remember talking to a lawyer at the time and saying, why, like, why did they not proceed with this? He was prepared to, to admit to the murder of, of Bridie Gargan. There was no question but that he had shot Donald Don. Apparently he put the gun to his cheek in a field in Eden Derry. And the reason that I was given at the time was, well, it would be a legal absurdity to have someone serve two life sentences because of course, by definition, a life sentence is for life, of course we know it isn't. And at the time it would have been probably even shorter, or the expectation would have been shorter than subsequently. The head of the investigation, the prosecuting guard, would of course have set out the sequence of events for the family's sake, you know, to have it publicly acknowledged, this is what happened to your loved one, and this is what was done, and this is the punishment that is going to follow. But I definitely remember the conspiracy theories at the time, had there been social media, you know, it would have been absolutely awash with the theories, because it was strange, it was unusual. I mean, there have been several multiple murderers in the past, before and since, who were sentenced for each of the murders, who were convicted and sentenced for each of the murders. No illegal absurdities arose there, and I still don't know why, like everybody, I have my suspicions. I mean, can you say there were people who were afraid of what might have come out? who were afraid of what connections might have been exposed, who were afraid... I mean, a deal was quite possibly done, we don't know this because he's never explained, with MacArthur to say, OK, we'll do you for one murder if you don't plead not guilty. Pleading not guilty would have opened up such a can of worms. In my strong suspicion, some deal had to be done to keep the lid on what else might have come out.
3: Whatever the cursory manner in which the trial ended reinforced the views of those who believed there had been a conspiracy. Malcolm MacArthur was given a mandatory life sentence, but for only one murder, that of Bridie Gargan. For Donald Dunn's family, it was a cruel blow. For them, justice had not been done for the merciless killing of the young Offaly farmer. His brother, Christy pursued a campaign to reopen the case for many years. It was ultimately fruitless. Here's Peter Murta, co-author of The Boss, then security correspondent of The Irish Times. The
4: killing of Donal Dunn was left on the record, if you like, as a not-taken a nully prosecution, because there was, there was nothing to be gained by taking it except justice for the family concerned, which is no small thing. But there was no point in terms of the administration of the criminal law in taking that case. And when that happened, again, there were huge assumptions that this is some sort of a stitch-up. I don't think it was... I don't think Mr Connolly did anything wrong in all of this other than going on holidays when when he did. He was was an unfortunate victim of a bizarre and unprecedented situation.
3: There was one conspiracy theory that did the rounds that really impacted on Paddy Connolly. It was to the effect there was a homosexual element to Malcolm MacArthur's murders. There was no basis to it, yet it still persisted. If that occurred nowadays, nobody would make much of it but homosexuality was still a criminal offence in 1982. In an earlier episode, the television director, Bill Hughes, recalled the underground scene of the early 1980s, when gay people were hiding in plain sight, as he put it. Berkeley Duns was one of the pubs most frequented by gay men, though it was not exclusively gay and had a straight clientele as well. Bartley
7: Dunn's was the grand old dame of gay bars in Dublin. It was very funny because the two owners who were behind the bar every night denied that it was a gay bar. They were there serving drink to an almost exclusively male clientele and they prided themselves on having every possible spirit behind the bar and they'd mix the most exotic cocktails for people. And how they could deny that it was a gay bar was always kind of a joke to me, but that was their way of running their business, that was fine. It was dark, it was dingy. If you went down into the back, it was a place where there'd be courting couples, but the courting couples on second inspection were actually men. And that was very daring in a time when
3: it was illegal to be gay. It was, in a way, understandable that the Gordon investigation pursued this as one of its lines of inquiry. Both MacArthur and Paddy Connolly had socialised in Bartley, Dunn and the Bailey. Connolly was a single man. MacArthur certainly looked very different in the way he dressed and comported himself. Here's Brenda Power. She said many people jumped to conclusions.
5: I think a lot of people were surprised to discover that Malcolm MacArthur had a female partner and kids. It seemed to be the only explanation, I suppose, when you look back, and as you say, homosexuality was still illegal at the time. I think that the suggestion was there was some kind of a ring of, you know, connected, privileged, well-known people who might have wanted this connection covered up for reasons that really had nothing to do with the murders. There was an awful lot more to it, you couldn't help but conclude, than met the eye, and an awful lot more to it than we, we heard. Given MacArthur's demeanour and, and appearance and a dicky bow, you know, you might as well hang a sign around your neck in Dublin at the time. And you know, elderly, lawyer type and wealthy,
3: well-connected. Neither man was gay. What might have pushed the Gordy to pursue this theory was the American diplomat Harry Bealing, the man who was held up at gunpoint by MacArthur. When they spoke to Bealing, a single man, they discovered that many of his acquaintances were gay. In their book, The Boss, Joe Joyce and Peter Murta wrote that Harry Bealing got the impression that guards believed there may have been A homosexual dimension to the killings. Bealing was specifically asked, "Did he know Charles Self, a gay man, savagely killed in his flat in nearby Monkstown the previous January?"
5: Good afternoon. The man who died after being found with serious head injuries in Dublin's Fairview Park early
6: yesterday has been named as Declan Flynn of 183 Swords Road in Dublin. He was 31 years old, single and a ground services employee of Air Reanther. A Garda
5: murder squad is investigating the circumstances of Mr Flynn's death.
3: As a point of fact, Self was one of three gay men who were killed in Ireland during that period. The investigations of which reinforced the sense of the gay community there was a deep social antipathy and prejudice towards them. One man, Declan Flynn, died after being, and I quote, queerbashed by local youths. None of them were sent to prison. The killer of another man, John Roach, successfully used the defence of, and I quote, homosexual panic in his case, and had the conviction reduced from murder to manslaughter. Charles self-worked as a designer in RTE, the national broadcaster. He was a friend of Bill Hughes. He went for a night out in January 1982. He returned home to his flat with an unknown man who battered him to death during the course of that night. His murder has gone unsolved to this day. Moreover, Hughes says, the subsequent Gorda investigation rode roughshod over the gay community. Charles,
7: like his murder, was so savage and so vicious, and it was obviously carried out by a psychopath, and that that psychopath was out uh, in, in in the community, and had not been caught. But the fact that the guardy used Charles's little black book to then go to people's homes, go to their places of work asking to speak to them in connection with the homosexual murder of Charles Self and thereby outing these people to their parents, to their siblings, outing them in their places of work. It was really repressive. And if you go back in your head to that time, you just
3: get terribly depressed. Malcolm MacArthur was actually questioned by Gorthy about Charles Self's murder as the killing happened in January that year, a few months before his departure for Tenerife in May. With this new element in the investigation, inevitably Paddy Connolly was drawn into it. Connolly's nephew Stephen says his father Tony immediately cottoned on to this rumour, but his uncle Paddy was totally unaware. There were lots of lurid rumours and suggestions as to Paddy's private life and his relationship with Malcolm MacArthur.
2: Well, my father would have copped it immediately before there were any rumours. I mean, you have this chief legal officer and this eccentric companion sharing a house. Well, I mean, it wasn't sharing, he was, I mean, but that's what the public were going to see. A dandy figure, you know, Barclay Duns, all that type of stuff. It was fairly obvious that the rumours were going to happen. I mean, Paddy would have been blissfully unaware of that as a possibility. Patty's connection was with Brenda before she met with Malcolm MacArthur. Very solid connection right throughout and right up to his death. They remained very close and he was an intensely loyal person and he stuck by people. He was compassionate, he was extremely kind, just extraordinary human being and, um, and a real Christian. But yeah, he, his friendship was with Brenda. It wasn't with Malcolm. Malcolm was a, a by the way, I mean, they had a, a son, and Paddy was very friendly with that young man. A, a young child, and grew up to be a young man, and remained very friendly with him. But no, his relationship wasn't with Malcolm and Arthur, no. Absolutely. Not at all. And, and again, he's, Paddy was very clear where Paddy's preferences lay. Um, you know, he had loads of girlfriends, uh, very close to getting married at one stage. Um, and I suppose in these day and ages with Twitter and everything else, You know, how much basis is there to anything ever said these days? You know, everything is down to perception and there's no investigation of what's underneath those 180 words and the tweet or whatever. But no, you know, he's not at all.
3: Even in an age without social media, it was a hard landing for Paddy Connolly. He had the misfortune to be friendly with MacArthur and had made one colossal mistake. Going on his holidays, the day after, a murderer was arrested in his flat... After a few weeks, he returned to the semi-anonymity of the bar, but it was never the same.
2: On the 4th of October, he he returned back to the Law Library and he received a warm welcome. And for him to say that he received a warm welcome, I mean, that's an understated comment. He was hugely appreciative of the support that he got and, yeah, he did extremely well.
3: There was a tradition that former attorneys general were given the option of becoming judges of the superior courts. That invitation was never extended to Paddy Connolly. Here's Stephen Connolly.
2: Your know, Supreme Court judges this and are appointed by politicians. And because of what happened, he was never appointed. It lingered with him for a long, long time, possibly for the rest of his life.
3: It also affected Paddy Connolly's friendship with Charlie Hawhey. For over 20 years afterwards, they did not really speak or socialise.
2: The nature of that relief really changed substantially. Paddy would have still have had high regard for Hahi's intellectual abilities. But the politics side of it, no, he felt let down. And I do remember talking to him in subsequent years. There was an understanding that the door to a Supreme Court appointment was not being closed when he resigned. But clearly it was closed.
3: Hahi did make amends.
2: In latter years, when Hahi was diagnosed with cancer, he sent Paddy a Christmas card. And Paddy responded. There was a sort of um, a reconciliation, if you want to call it yeah, that. A rapprochement, I think. Uh, yes. Yes,
3: yes. Patrick Connolly practised at the bar until he was 82 and died in 2016, aged 88. He had maintained a lifetime friendship with Brenda Little, the partner of Malcolm MacArthur. Generous and open to a fault. When he died, she was included among the beneficiaries of his will.
0: For full, important safety information, visit juvederm.com. But society needs the work of such
3: artists, I am convinced. The individual vision, frequently in the end, becomes the collective vision. So how did Charlie Hawhey fare after Gubu? The disparaging phrase coined by Conor Cruz O'Brien came to define his subsequent career as his biographer, Gary Murphy, relates.
8: Like, he detested Conor Cruz O'Brien, loathed him. That really annoyed him, the fact that O'Brien would have coined this phrase, Google, that, uh, yeah, in many ways, haunted hockey like uh, Banquo's ghost. He, he couldn't shake it off. Frank
3: Dunlop is off the same view.
1: Why the incident is so emblematic of what was happening while Charlie was Taoiseach at that period was it didn't matter what happened. If the cat was killed, it was Charlie's fault. And John Healy said, famously, if Charlie had ducks, they'd drown.
3: John Healy, by the way, was a political journalist with the Irish Times. Remember what Hawi's chief whip, Bertie Ahern had said of 1981 and 1982.
6: It was crazy stuff. A I minute, mean, the place became a bit crazy for a year or two.
3: A lot of crazy stuff was indeed happening, and much of it within government, and that's why Gubu stuck. One of the reasons was because the makeup of Hawi's cabinet was very divided. It included, in the early years, arch critics like George Colley and Des O'Malley. Here's the broadcaster Olivia O'Leary.
5: What we're talking about here is loyalty and disloyalty. Hawi had shown no loyalty to Jack Lynch as far as people like Collie and O'Malley and, you know, other people were concerned. And, of course, having shown no loyalty to Jack Lynch, he knew damn well there'd be very little loyalty to him.
7: And loyalty mattered desperately to Hahi.
3: There was constant dissent in that government. It led to a leadership challenge against Hahi in October 1982. It happened only two months after MacArthur's arrest. Hahi survived the vote. Charles Hawley had problems with those who were disloyal to him. But on the flip side, he had problems too with those who were too loyal to him. Here's Frank Dunlop, then Government Press Secretary.
1: I mean, the fact of the matter is that Charlie was bedevilled by the activities and the actions of some of the people he appointed as government ministers. Now, whether those government ministers thought they were acting in a fashion that they thought would please Charlie... Or why did they thought they were acting in a way that was for the good and the best interests of the country?
3: One of those true loyalists was the late Sean Doherty. He was a TD from Roscommon in the west of Ireland. He himself was a former Gorda and was a surprise appointment as Minister for Justice in that government. Here's how he's biographer, Gary Murphy.
8: It's a government racked with Bad luck, but also, I think, ill judgment on, on his behalf, most notably in selecting Sean Doherty to become his Minister for Justice. Uh, Doherty, a former guard, and I think it's never a good idea to put a former guard in charge of the, the Gardaí, probably unsuited for the, the position, uh, and then involved in a number of controversies towards the end of that particular government.
3: The biggest controversy revolved around the tapping of the phones of two prominent journalists... Sterling Kennedy and Bruce Arnold, who had written extensively about dissent in the Fianna Fáil cabinet. The person who sanctioned the telephone tapping was Sean Doherty, the Minister for Justice. It was extraordinary that this was happening, only seven years after Watergate. When the story broke in 1983, Fianna Fáil was out of government. Doherty claimed to have acted alone, Contending that Haughey was wholly unaware of his actions. Unsurprisingly, it became another of those gooboo moments. Haughey survived it. But this incident would come back to haunt him almost a decade later. We will come to that presently. By November 1982, Haughey was out of power, having been defeated by Finegrail's Gareth Fitzgerald in the general election. Here's how his chief whip, Bertie Ahern, describes the fallout.
6: And then the turmoil in, in Fianna Fáil, where a number of attempts are made to, to remove him. So, like, we went well into, in 1983, before things settled down. With What was three challenges to his leadership, you know, the three general elections in a short period of time. Uh, so it, it was really a, a turmoil. But I think from the country's point of view, All those elections and the effect that it had on the image of the country, the economy, the ongoing problems in the north, you know, like it was a horrific period, really.
3: Hai spent the next five years in opposition. He then returned as Taoiseach in 1987 for his most successful spell as leader. In two successive terms of two years each, the country moved from recession to strong economic growth, which proved the basis for future prosperity. The Gubu slogan was finally beginning to recede.
7: Some have even gone so far to say as he's turned the economy around. In fact, recent public opinion polls in Ireland have shown that Mr. Hawkeye is the most personally popular Prime Minister in the recent history of Ireland. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to the Prime Minister of Ireland to talk about reflections on democracy.
1: Cannot be acceptable. That perversion of the course of justice by officers of the state should be publicly acknowledged, and then left at that. Thank you very much. Indeed. By
8: 1987, when his Fianna Fáil government won that election, and certainly by 1989, some of it was beginning to fade, and he and his government was making significant breakthrough.
2: There was a decision taken in Cabinet that the leaking of matters from Cabinet must be stopped. I, as Minister for Justice, had a direct responsibility for doing that. I
1: did that. I do feel
4: that.
3: This is from a late night TV chat show on RTE called Nighthawks. The guests tended to be mainly young, mainly hip. But on that night, in January 1992, the guest was not young nor hip by any stretch of the imagination. He was a middle aged Fianna Fáil politician who had fallen into semi-obscurity. It was Sean Doherty, the former Minister for Justice. We heard earlier that Doherty had taken the full rap for tapping the phones of two journalists. But now he was saying the complete opposite, that Hahi was fully aware at the time, back in 1982.
0: His former Justice Minister announced recently that 10 years ago he authorized taps of two journalists' telephones.
3: What we are talking about is
7: one of the most sordid episodes in our recent history. What we're talking about was a flagrant violation and an invasion of human rights.
3: For his part, Haughey denied any knowledge. He claimed Doherty had been put up to making the allegations by a rival who wanted to oust him from the leadership. In any event, the intervention did precipitate the end of his career. In early 1992, at the age of 67, he stepped down as Taoiseach.
1: i quote perhaps Othello. I have done the state some service. They know it. No more of that.
3: In the Irish Parliament, the Doyle, he got a standing ovation from his Fianna Fáil colleagues.
1: If I were to seek any accolade as I leave office, it would simply be he served the people, all the people, to the best of his
8: ability. There's a tumultuous chair in the door from the Fianna Fáil back benches. And he ends his public life on something of a something of a high. And he has a very dignified retirement for about 65
3: years. For five or six years. And then it all changed. Remember the KBI? The key business influencer? Charlie Hawhey, who took a million pounds on loan from a bank in the 1970s and never paid it back? Well, a quarter of a century later, Hahi's past caught up with him. In another sensational story of Gubu Dimensions, it was revealed Hahi had received millions in secret contributions over the years. A tribunal later found the payments were corrupt.
8: His life is then ruined. He lives the last few years of his life as a relative a recluse in his Ganden design mansion.
3: Charles Hahi died in 2006 at the age of 80. He had always divided opinion, but now the pendulum had swung the wrong way. He was more ostracised than revered. For Olivio O'Leary, those revelations, above everything else, coloured his legacy.
5: But there is a part of me that agrees with the view that he was inclined to end up corrupting so much of what he touched and that those who were his close followers took their lead from that. And that's a dreadful, dreadful legacy to leave behind in
3: terms of politics. His biographer, Gary Murphy, paints a mixed legacy.
8: He has a lot of achievements to his name, um, in relation to things like the peace process, in relation to restoring international confidence in the state, free electricity for, for pensioners, free travel for pensioners. And I, I think what had happened is a private Hockey, that of the money-taking, that of the extramarital affair with Terry Keane, had come completely to dominate public discourse about him. Well, I think he is complex, uh, he is fascinating, he is deeply flawed, certainly, and the pursuit of power probably, over everything else, um, damned him in the end.
3: It damned Hockey in the end. This is his press secretary, Frank Dunlop.
8: I find it very
1: difficult to actually say something completely and totally negative about Charlie Hawley. I mean, I'll always say that, you know, yeah, Charlie has faults. Like the rest, we all have faults. Some of us much more public than others. But we all have faults. Charlie had faults. I mean, if you go back to where Charlie came from, and the life that he had led, and his mother looking after a family after the father died, and he was a scholarship boy, obviously full of brains, and he got where he was by, on pure merit. So you find it difficult, then, when you hear people talking about Charlie's dictatorial demeanour, his aristocratic ambitions, uh, his wealth, etc.
3: We all have faults. Some more public than others, said Dunlop. Some of the main players in this series were controversial figures in their own right. Many years later, Dunlop worked as a lobbyist and was convicted for paying counsellors on behalf of developers. He subsequently qualified as a lawyer. Detective John Courtney was criticised for allowing alleged heavy-handed treatment of suspects in other cases at a later juncture in the 1980s. Hawhey's chief whip, Bertie Ahern, later became Taoiseach and was instrumental in getting the Good Friday Agreement over the line. However, he was later criticised for economic policies that contributed to the banking crash in Ireland in 2009. Of the others, the gardener Paddy Byrne is now 84 and lives near the Phoenix Park. The newspaper seller George Davis still runs his business and also owns a pub. The two Gordon detectives, Tony Hickey and John O'Mahony, Went on to have distinguished careers in Ngorda Chukona, both retiring with the rank of Assistant Commissioner. There was another detective involved in the investigation, John O'Mahony's partner, Frank Hand. On the 10th of August 1984, he and Detective Gorda Michael Dowd were escorting a cash delivery to a post office in County Meath. They were attacked by the Provisional IRA at Drumcree Post Office. The IRA unit opened fire on the Gordie. Detective Hand was injured and subsequently died of his wounds. He was 25 years of age. Which brings us to the third person in the Guba Triangle. Malcolm Daniel Edward MacArthur. Earlier, we heard he had been convicted in January 1983 for only one murder, that of Bridie Gorgon. A nulli prosequi, or null prosecution, was recorded for the death of Donald Don. That caused public outrage. Leinster leader journalist Henry Boris says the Dunn family were completely excluded from justice.
4: I've been covering the courts for years. And the introduction of the victim impact statement it was one of the innovations during all that period. And it, it was an attempt to, to bring more empathy for, for victims. And really, in this case, the Dunn family were left far short of, of that. My big wish for, for, for them today, even at this distance, is like that they've managed to find some peace. Yeah, because they did have a huge sense of grievance and injustice didn't they Henry? Yes it was and I mean it was, a, it was, it was an unnecessary uh, grievance in my view.
3: Back in 1983 the investigative magazine McGill suggested a plea bargain had been brokered by the celebrated lawyer Patrick McEntee that would have allowed MacArthur to be released when still a relatively young man perhaps after 10 years. The plan backfired. The case had acquired a notoriety that did not abate. The decision on granting parole was a political one and successive ministers for justice were not willing to make that call. Here's Brenda Power.
5: Well, ironically, that was not a very successful gambit because... The very controversy that the single conviction provoked guaranteed Malcolm MacArthur a notoriety that he might not otherwise have had if he had pleaded guilty to the two murders, taken the the concurrent sentences, as of course they would have been, and served them. But, But because of the suspicion that there was more to this than met the eye and that these two unfortunate people were sort of collateral damage in a much bigger story, kept the mystique about that alive for 30 years and more. We're still talking about it now. I think that if the expectation was he'd be out in seven to eight years well that was hugely unrealistic at the time.
3: There was another twist that emerged afterwards. Among MacArthur's belongings left in Patrick Conley's flat Gorthy found a handwritten sheet of paper with detailed notes and diagrams on a plan to kill somebody by electrocution. It was damning. The writing was MacArthur's. It read, and I quote, electric fire with faulty plug attached, adapter left in wall, none of my fingerprints, make sure hers on handle. And then a little later, wait for a while to ensure that death is final. Then, bizarrely, there are detailed arrangements written out for the subsequent funeral, It was clear that the intended victim here was MacArthur's own mother, Irene. His contemporary from County Meath, Jim, recalls the local reaction to this revelation.
2: When it all unfolded too, then he seemingly tried to uh, do things on horror. You know, this was what said. But you're
3: referring to, to a, an alleged plot, I'm to electrocute her. Electrocute her, yeah, the kettle and all sorts of stuff like that. Well, you see, we only read about that, Harry, we didn't know. It was like a, uh,
2: something that you'd read or read a book about or read, uh, see on BBC uh, some serial or that.
3: The existence of the letter put paid to any faint hope of an early release at least as long as his mother was alive. As it happened, MacArthur was a model prisoner. He ran the printing press in one of the prisons and spent the last years of his incarceration in an open prison in County Wicklow. His mother, Irene, died in 2008. Malcolm MacArthur became one of the longest-serving prisoners in the Irish penal system, spending 30 years in jail. He was released in 2012 and has lived a quiet and unobtrusive life in Dublin since, frequenting bookshops and libraries. We approached him for an interview for this series, but he declined. In one of the few public comments he made, he criticised the length of his sentence. That has elicited little sympathy from others, including his mother, Irene. Here she talks to David Hanley in that RTE interview from 1983.
1: Uh, when a murder is committed, you feel that whoever committed it should be hanged?
5: Well, I've got the old-fashioned belief of what I was taught as a child. I'm sure in uh, my religious upbringing, I was taught a life for a life. I think that comes into the Bible, does it?
3: Here's Bertie
6: Ahern. I would be of the view that, and I tried to do this during my years in office, was to lengthen the sentences for for murders. I'm of the view, and generally, that the the sentences are, are too lenient. Uh, I think when I started, uh, it was 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, I still think it's too lenient.
3: One question remains. Why did Malcolm MacArthur do what he did? Why did this shy, bookish aristocrat, who had until then showed no violent disposition, go on such a brutal rampage? The defence team did toy with pleading insanity, but psychiatric reports did not back up such a plea. In the only interview she gave, his mother Irene said he had seen violence at an early age and had perhaps inherited a trait from his father of being a dreamer and a fantasist. She also recounted this strange incident from the year he was born.
5: His uncle, father's brother-in-law I should say, was murdered in England as a psychiatrist in 1946. And in that case, the man had looked at the film of Spellbrand with Ingrid Bergman in it and had copied the pattern of what happened this psychiatrist was murdered by the soldier and you know the whole thing was copied for the film and i really began to wonder now had he read something seen something heard something and decided on a pattern
3: of attack it must be noted that it is others who have searched for such an explanation macarthur has given none and has maintained a stoic silence over 40 years never mentioning the case the journalist and barrister Brenda Power does not accept that a violent childhood holds water as an explanation.
5: Bear in mind that in, in the Ireland that he would have grown up in, slapping and beating children was, was absolutely accepted. The teachers hit you, you know, the nuns hit you, your parents hit you. Violence would have been a feature of, of a lot of people's childhoods at the time. Not sufficient, I'm afraid, to justify in any way what he did. I mean, if you say, well, he was he was traumatised by having been assaulted by his father, then why did he attack a woman? You know, he's, the reason he was looking for the car and the gun was because he wanted to rob banks for money. You know, there's nothing in his childhood that that justifies anything to do with that sort of life choice.
3: In his statement, MacArthur had spoken of his obsession with having no money and how that had driven him to commit his crimes. Those who knew him spoke about the Walter Mitty or fantasist side to his personality, his sense of superiority and indifference to the plight of others. Brenda Parr has no doubts as to where all this points.
5: Well, it sounds to me like a classic description of um, narcissistic personality disorder, because if you look at if you, you can say incompetent, on the other hand, maybe it was just arrogance. Maybe he was so convinced that he was so superior because that's what the classic pathological narcissists believe, that they are so superior to the ordinary you know, plebs and they shouldn't be held to the same account as them and and, and that whatever they do, they will be more successful at. And there is, in, in narcissistic personality disorder, as I understand it, there is a real disaffect from other people's feelings, an inability to empathise to a a, a pathological degree. So you can either see his behaviour as blundering and sort of incompetent or else born of an absolute conviction that I am entitled to this, I am superior to these people. If this non-entity has to die for me to get a car and a gun, that's, you know, unfortunate, but, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over because me and my needs and my entitlements are so superior and so important that these people are minnows and they're inconsequential. If you look at it that way, it kind of makes a lot more sense. So it is a pretty classic definition of of narcissistic personality disorder, almost wounded by the suggestion that you should be held to the same account as anybody else and unable, absolutely unable, to process the the injury you're inflicting on
3: on others. For the two detectives involved in the case there was a clear motive. This is John O'Mahony. There was a motive here. There was a motive
1: for he needed money. That was it. It was the way he went about it, was that, that lack of empathy that, you know, there was nobody getting in my way. I want a lifestyle. I'm not willing to work for the money to pay for that lifestyle. So I'll just rob it or I'll kill somebody in the, it
3: in the, gets in my way. Brenda Power covered many murder trials as a journalist. She said MacArthur stood out as different in one respect.
5: Some of them were pitiable characters, culpable as they were. But you never got the impression that MacArthur was looking for anybody's sympathy or pity. You know, that whatever scheme or whatever narrative he had applied to this, there was a consciousness about it, there was a deliberateness about it, and there was a total lack of any apparent remorse. And I suppose, you know, even if you feign it, even if you don't mean it, Most of them would attempt to do that, you know, to put on some show of remorse, even where they were in denial and and, and pleading not guilty or whatever. You know, you got the sense that, that there was a human being behind there who was on some level in agony. But I can't say you ever got that sense about Malcolm MacArthur.
3: A few years after the case, the Irish author John Banville wrote a compelling novel, The Book of Evidence, which told a remarkably similar tale to that of MacArthur's. Its antihero was Freddie Montgomery. The surname of the fictional character was that of a famous British general. The surname, an indirect reference to MacArthur, who shares a surname with the famous American general. In a telling passage, Montgomery explains why he showed no remorse for killing a young servant girl, and I quote, Remorse implies the expectation of forgiveness and I knew that what I had done was unforgivable. I could have feigned regret and sorrow, guilt, all that, but to what end? Even if I'd felt such things truly, in the deepest depths of my heart, would it have altered anything? The deed was done and would not be cancelled by cries of anguish and repentance. Beyond the statement he gave Gorthy, Malcolm MacArthur has never spoken about the events of that summer. He is now 76. His wavy hair is now silver. He is still a dapper dresser, but no longer wears bow ties. It is understood he does feel remorse for his crime. But perhaps like Freddie Montgomery, there is no way for him to express it in public or in private without it sounding callow. It is now 40 years since that sweltering summer of 1982. Two young people in the prime of their lives, the nurse Bridie Gargan and the farmer Donald Don, would have their lives cut abruptly short and would not see that summer out.
4: The families have been forgotten, maybe to a large extent, and I mean, they got life sentences yep. on the Sunday and on the, the Monday when Bridie Gargan
3: died. In turn, Malcolm MacArthur's arrest. At the apartment of Attorney General Paddy Connolly, created a political scandal of Everest proportions. But once it did emerge that he had been arrested in the apartment of the Attorney General, I mean, for any newspaper reporter, that is a sensational it was story.
4: Absolutely sensational. I mean, it was probably one of the most sensational stories. Uh, that I can think of, certainly in my career and at, and at any stage in, in, in the last like 50 years. I mean, absolutely extraordinary.
3: Four decades have passed, and still those niggling, unsettling questions persist. The brittle, yellowed pages of old newspapers reveal no full answers, no complete explanations. So many aspects of that strange summer when Malcolm MacArthur killed two people remain fathomless, meaningless. There can be no other word that fully captures the enormity of it all. Gubu. 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 Gubu is an Irish Times audio production. It was written, produced and presented by myself, Harry McGee. The editor of Gubu was Enda O'Dowd. The executive editor and senior producer of audio at the Irish Times is Declan Conlon. Sound mix was by JJ Vernon. Graphics was by Paul Scott. The title music was by Oracle. We thank the RTE Archives, Reuters, the Jimmy Carter Library, the Ronald Reagan Library and the Orochthus TV Archive for further comprehensive coverage of the Gubu scandal, including articles notes, photographs and maps, visit irishtimes.com. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support future long-term projects, please consider subscribing at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe.
1: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.